Now, Father, we have sung your praises, and we have asked you to bless this service, and indeed you have already. And we ask you now, Father, as we take one more look at the text of 1 Corinthians, that you would be glorified in it, that we would be challenged to change, to become more like Christ, that we would not be left the same after being here with your people under your word, but, oh, Father, change us. Calls us to be transformed a little more into the image of Christ, we pray, for your glory and for your church's joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have not been with us in the past, we have been studying 1 Corinthians, and today will be the last textual portion of our study of 1 Corinthians. It's my intention to finish this book, uh, believe it or not, by the end of our session today. In fact, I was looking this week to see when we started this, and ironically, in the mystery of God's providence, we actually started this book um, three years ago this week, uh, this coming April 19th, 2009, is uh, was our first time to look at this book. And we've done a lot more along the way. We've stepped away from 1 Corinthians several times to tackle some other issues and to talk about Christmas and Easter and, uh, and some other issues that came along the way. But for the most part, we have been studying this book for three years. Now, here's a question. How many of you have been here for this study since April 19th, 2009? Raise your hand. Well, good. That's some good stay in power. You've been very patient with me. Thank you very much. And I'm considering now whether next week I should uh, just give us kind of a jet tour of the whole book once again so that we see the highlights so that when we leave off of this book, um, we'll have a pretty good idea of what the whole thing is about in the back of our minds as we go. So what do you think? Should we do that next week? And then uh, the week after that, I'll be off and uh, then we'll come back and start something new, and I'll tell you maybe more about that later. Um, in the meantime, we still have 12 verses to complete, and I hope to do all of them today. Now, the final section of this book reveals something about the Apostle Paul, reveals the Apostle Paul's love for the church, not just any, uh, not just the, 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 um, the specific church in Corinth, but of all of the church, and in specific, this particular church, Paul had a great, a high view of the local church. He believed it deserved God's best. And so some of the things he says here at the end are very strong, typical of the Apostle Paul, and some of it is very tender and very affectionate. Paul had a lot of hard things to say in these 15 chapters leading up to these final verses. But here at the end, he wants to communicate how much he loves the people at the church of Corinth. As divisive as they have been, as difficult as they have been to, to deal with thus far, yet he loves them and he wants the best for them. In verses 13 and 14, we read Paul's final word of exhortation to this group. And here is what he says. Follow along with me. This is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Um, very succinct, very powerful. In fact, I thought about perhaps spending my entire time just on these two verses, but we need to get finished today, so we'll press on. Verses 13 and 14. 
be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. I think that's his premise for the rest of this chapter, and maybe a summary of all he's been saying along the way. Act like men, be strong, be on the alert, and let all that you do be done in love. Now, before we move on, let's rehearse our definition of love. If Paul is trying to communicate love for the church, then what is the definition of love? It's not what we normally think. We've covered this before back in chapter 13. We dealt with this extensively, but you would probably remember it. This is what love is. To love is to give whatever I have that you need because God wants me to. To love is to give whatever it is that I have that you need because God wants me to. A couple of key scriptures to go along with that about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or, for example, Ephesians 5.21. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We could go to 1 John. We could go to to the Gospel of John. This is all over the New Testament. To love is to give. It's not just to feel. It is to give. It is to give whatever I have, even if it means sacrifice, even if it's contrary to my good feelings. It is to give whatever I have that they need because God wants me to. And that's Paul, that's how Paul operated with the church. And that's how he calls us to operate with one another. With that in mind, let's consider the love of God in these final words of the apostle. How does Paul show us his love for God and the church? Here we go. Number one, we see Paul's love in his insistence on godly character. We see Paul's love in his insistence on godly character. And we just read the key verses here. Verse 13 is the essence of it. And here's what he says once again. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. That's his final exhortation. Let's just take a few minutes to kind of dice this up in each one of these phrases and terms. First of all, alert. What does he mean by alert? Alert in the New Testament means simply to stay awake, to keep vigilant, to be watchful. The reality is, The reason we need this exhortation is because we all tend to become insensitive to the things that God cares about the most. Left to ourselves, we tend to become insensitive to the things that God is most passionate about, like holiness, like seeing other people come to Christ, like loving our wives and and sacrificing for them as Christ did the church, like raising our children to love God and serve him. We're commanded to be alert. But specifically, what are we commanded to be alert for? Well, he doesn't say here, but let's just digress for a couple of minutes, shall we? What does the New Testament tell us to be alert for? Number one, we're commanded to be on the alert for the the attack of the enemy of our souls. Here's how Peter says it, 1 Peter 5.8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring what? Lion. Say it again. Lion. 
seeking whom he may devour. There is nothing that makes Satan happier than devouring the faith of a believer. You may be a brand new believer. And yes, when, when God gets to, I mean, when Satan gets a hold of a pastor and causes him to fall, the ripple effect of that is devastating. That's true. But you know what? There's some brand new believers in this church. And if Satan is able to get them, it's going to have a devastating effect as well. Maybe not as broad sweeping, but there are people now who are watching their lives. There are people right now who are over at Calvary 101 in the next building learning about Calvary Bible Church, and a couple of them have just come to know Christ in the last last couple of weeks. And you know what? If Satan gets them, all of their family members that they've been sharing the gospel with, they're going to go, oh, we knew that was nothing. We knew there was nothing to that. Think of Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed, four kinds of seed. Uh, I'm sorry, four, four kinds of soil, same seed. The gospel is the seed. Four kinds of soil. Only one of them was truly receptive and persevered with the gospel. The other three, the hard soil, the rocky soil, the weed-infested soil, all three of them Satan had his way with, either by stealing the seed immediately, like on the hard soil, or by bringing in, bringing in uh, fanning, into affection, fanning their, their desires for money, or relief from suffering, or whatever it was to cause them to turn away from their complete trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant for this faith that we claim to be ours. And Jesus takes this a step further. Mark 14, 31, Jesus warned his disciples to be alert for temptation. Here's what he says to the disciples. Keep watching and pray that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You ever pray that? Lord, I want to. I'm just, man, my flesh is so weak. Every morning I get up, God willing, eh, not every morning, but I try every morning to get up and spend some time in the Word and then get out and walk because that's my time for just fellowship with God, communion with God, and prayer for you, for my family, for the people I'm discipling, for whoever and everyone that I know that I need to be praying for. And you know what? Sometimes in the morning, I get up and I read the word, and it's just not, I'm just not getting it. I'm, every word, every phrase, I have to read three or four times. My mind is distracted. I need another cup of coffee or something. I need the Holy Spirit to do something in my heart, and I get out there on the street and I start walking in the dark. And my first prayer is, God, sometimes the spirit is willing, the flesh is really weak this morning. I don't feel anything. I don't feel any desire for you. I don't necessarily feel any temptation. I just feel dead. God, help me. God, help me. Don't let me stay in the state for long because I know my heart will go out searching for something to satisfy it. So God, help me. It's my way of just trying to be vigilant every morning to evaluate the condition of my heart and ask God to help me avoid or to uh, deflect whatever temptation may come from either from the outside or from within. Listen, brothers, men, 
If you are not actively and purposefully defending your soul against temptation, you're going to fall. You're going to. It's just a matter of time. Temptation is everywhere. If you are not actively, purposefully defending yourself against temptation, then sooner or later you're going to fall. Time and truth go hand in hand, right? Give it enough time, the truth is going to come out. Whatever it is that's happening in your heart, that's going to come out. Somewhere along the way, your sins will find you out. One of the scriptures I've been meditating on here recently, and actually now for a couple of months, is uh, out of Proverbs 4. Guard, or depending on your translation, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Your heart is where everything about you comes from, good, bad, indifferent, holy, wicked. It all comes from your heart. You need to guard it. You need to be sensitive to it, not morbidly introspective, but daily evaluating your heart. Where am I, God? How am I doing? What needs to change? What have I allowed into my life this week? What kind of came to me as an external temptation that I have responded to in a, in a manner that's not pleasing to you? How have I sinned? How am I inadvertently being led astray? It's so important, beloved, that we are careful, that we're intentional about guarding our hearts from temptation. Be on the alert. Be on the alert. Number three, we need to be alert for false teachers. Paul warns that there will be false teachers among you who will, uh, this is Peter, not Paul, uh, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. This is 2 Peter chapter 2. And Jude, the whole book of Jude was about the same issue. About people coming into the church or coming into your home, and maybe you let them into your home through radio or television or, or the books that you read. Be careful. Be careful. Be vigilant. Be alert. Not everything that purports itself to be Christian actually is. Just because it looks religious, just because there's some Bible verses tacked onto it, just because it looks like Christian self-help or some Christian spirituality doesn't mean it's biblical. Doesn't mean it's consistent with God and his word. We need to be careful about this. The first six years of Calvary Bible Church's existence, I've told you about this before, was a constant battle. All kinds of weird doctrines were trying to get into this church. And we were constantly battling them. Because we knew that they weren't biblical. We knew that they were going to do harm to God's people. We knew they were going to lead, it was going to lead people astray. But you know what? We need to do that not only with our church, but with our family as well. We need to be careful. We need to be on the alert. Your radar always needs to be up. What's being allowed to come into my home through television, through the movies that I watch? It may not be religious instruction. It may be the toleration of immorality. Whatever it is, we need to be on the alert. But primarily, here Peter is talking about teachers who've got their religious ideas, and they're going to use the scriptures to kind of convince you of something that isn't true. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. Now, on the other hand, we also need to be careful that we don't take this too far. On the one hand, many, many churches, in order for them to grow large, just allow pretty much anything to come in. Just anything. Let's do 40 days of what's happening now. Let's bring in this big speaker. Let's, 
you know, and who cares about doctrine? You know, we're just not terribly concerned about doctrine. What we're concerned about is spirituality. Let me just let you in on something. If you don't have sound doctrine, then whenever you, whatever spirituality you have is not of God. It's just not of God. we got to be careful. But on the other hand, we can't be like people who... who um, whose ambition in life is to expose every teacher they disagree with. Oh, that person stepped out of line there. Oh, that person stepped out of line over here. Oh, this is, this is a problem, you know? We've got to be really careful about that. Listen, it's one thing to be, it's one thing to be um, discerning. It's another thing to be censorious. You know what that term means? It means you're censoring everybody. Everybody's not perfect like you're perfect. Everybody doesn't get it right like you got it right. Listen, that's not loving, and that's not discerning. That's just being a jerk. That's just not being biblical. We need to be careful of that as well. On the one hand, we need to be discerning. On the other, we need to be gracious. And one of the principles that we use here at Calvary Bible Church is not, did someone come up with some false teaching? Look, listen, I don't have time to tell you all about that. We've got the Bible. We've got so much to learn from the Scriptures. For the most part, if you learn the Scriptures, that stuff will take care of itself. You'll see it for what it is. However, when do we deal with it? If it starts coming in, we're on that. We are on it. The elders of a church have three responsibilities in general. Feed, lead, and protect. And we are serious about protecting the church. If false doctrine comes in, as it has in the past, uh, it goes out as quick as it comes in. And sometimes the people who brought it in go with it. It has to be that way. It has to be that way. That's the way Jesus dealt with it. That's the way the Apostle Paul dealt with it. But here's the thing. We don't always have to be going around nitpicking everybody all the time because they are out of sync with what we believe is true. There's got to be a balance. But the key here is we need to be alert. Number four, we need to be alert in prayer. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 6, 18 says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. In other words, he's saying what he said in Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. We need to be alert in prayer. We need to be alert in prayer. Loving leaders are committed to prayer for themselves and for the needs of those they lead. And not only that, we're not just talking about church here. We're talking about the home. If you're a husband, then you are called to pray. If you're a father, oh boy, you're really called to pray. You're called to pray a little bit when they're young. You're called to pray a lot when they become teenagers. And when they go to college, just don't ever quit praying. Just keep praying. And you know what? But this isn't just for the dads. This is for the moms as well. And, and frankly, women tend to be more passionate about this. But you know what? Let me just talk to the children, especially you older boys and girls. Maybe you're teenagers. Maybe you're getting ready to head off. Or maybe there's a few more years before you leave. Guess what? God calls you to pray. And you know who we want you to pray for? You know who I want my kids praying for? When I'm praying for their dad. I want my boys to be praying, Dad... Father, please keep my dad holy and pure. Help him to understand your word. Help him to lead us well. 
Help us to be followers. As he struggles to lead, help us to struggle to submit. You need to be praying for your siblings. I know, that sounds like a miracle. Sounds impossible. But pray for them. Pray that God would bless them. Pray God's blessing on their lives. We all should be praying. And we try to encourage this at the end of every service by asking you to spend a little time before you leave. Just grab somebody, find out about their week, keep your radar up for needs, and pray about them as they come up right there in your conversation. Pray together. We need to be alert in prayer. We need to be alert for what to pray for. So many times we have conversations with one another and real needs are coming up. And, and we say, okay, well, I got to go. And we walk away. And we're not being alert. And maybe later on you'll think, oh, I should have prayed with that person. You weren't alert. Be alert. After the service today, you're going to have conversations. Be alert and pray. Pray. Finally, we need to be alert for the Lord's return. Listen, the promise of Christ's return should have a profound effect on the way we live. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 24, Matthew 24. He said again and again, warning us to be on the alert, for you do not know which day our Lord is coming. And Peter added this, therefore, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He realized that the promise of the resurrection, the promise of Christ's return, should have an effect on us now. What kind of people should we be now? In the way we relate to others, the way we relate to the world, in the way we relate to our money, to the church, to entertainment? How do we relate to these things? Do we relate to them with a future orientation that looks to the resurrection or just to the next experience of pleasure? And Jesus is coming back. If there's anything the, the scriptures are clear of, I don't care if you're pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, pan-mill, whatever it is you may be eschatologically, one thing we all agree on, he's coming back. And on the day of the resurrection, you will look back on your life and say, I wish, I wish I had not wasted my life. I wish I had done what God had called me to do. I wish I had been more holy. I wish I had been more faithful. I wish I had given more. I wish I had served more. I wish I had discipled more people. I wish I said no less and yes more. These are the characteristics of a godly man and a godly woman, mainly godly men. The first characteristic of a godly man is that he remains alert. Look at the second one. Second, he is to be firm in his faith. That's what he says. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. In other words, a, a, a godly man, a faithful godly man, should be strong in his commitment to the truth. Should be strong in his commitment to the truth. He's not like those that Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 4, who were blown and tossed by every wind of doctrine. They were discerning and loving. Discerning and and loving, but certainly discerning, strong, committed to the truth. This is a man whose mind is resolved. His mind and his resolve are trained by Scripture to know the difference between good and evil, to know the difference between right and wrong, 
to know the difference between truth and error. He's a man of conviction who lives under the authority of God's word regardless of what other people think and, listen to this, regardless of how he himself feels. If you are a feelings-driven person, woe to your family. Woe to those around you. I think I've shared with this, this more than once with you before, but sometimes young people will come and they're getting to the age where they're thinking about marriage and they'll come and they'll say, um, Pastor Dan, what, I, what should I be looking for in someone to marry? And, and I hope you ask that question before you find someone. But here's the answer to that question. Find someone who has a verifiable history of submission to God's word and marry them no matter what they look like. That's the foundation. Listen, you marry someone who looks good and they're talented and they're, they're pretty or they're handsome and they dress sharp and they got a nice car and they got prospects for a good financial future and they don't have a history of submission to the word of God, then you're in trouble before you ever started. I guarantee it. Sooner or later, you'll end up in my office in tears. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Find someone. If you're a child of God, then find someone who has a history of submission to Scripture, and you'll be happy. You will be happy because you're both living life the way God calls you to live. You're both submitting to the Lord, and that can't be anything but good. Third characteristic of a godly man, godly leader, is summed up in the next exhortation. I love this. Act like men. I mean, how simple is that, right? Act like men. What does he mean? He means be courageous. Be mature. It's literally in the Greek what it means. Be courageous. Be mature. If there was any hope for the church of Corinth to turn around and become a unified, fruitful instrument in the Redeemer's hand, it would only happen through the, the leadership of a few courageous men. Paul names a couple that we'll talk about here in just a couple of minutes. But be a man of courage. Be a man of substance. Know the truth. Love the truth, live the truth, and periodically, whenever necessary, take a stand. Take a stand. You may have to stand against family members. That's hard. That's hard. That's, that's the hardest, I think. You may have to, to take a stand in your business. I heard this morning about a brother had to take a stand in his business and had to hand a contract back to his potential employer because there was some very unethical and unbiblical things happening that were going to be a reproach to Christ if he continued. And he didn't know about it going in, but as soon as he found out, it was done. God will take care of me. That was his position. God will take care of me. With a job or without a, without a job, I must do what's right. Throw me into the fire. The Lord will deliver me. But if he doesn't, we're going to trust him anyway. Act like men Act like men. Don't be wimpy. Don't back down when time gets tough, when it's difficult, when you have to take a stand. Those are the moments that prove your loyalty to your captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Paul con conclude his letter with these final exhortations? I think it was simply because he loved the church. He knew what this church desperately needed 
was a group of godly men who were alert to the problems and needs of the church, who were discerning about the truth, who had an unshakable trust in Scripture, who, who, who possessed a courage of the Lord Jesus Christ to do something about it, and they loved the church. And that, that love moved Paul to exhort them one last time. Be what God wants you to be. It's as if he's saying, if you would just be and do what God wants you to be and do, these problems will resolve themselves. And there was a failure of leadership on the part of the men. And so we see Paul's love here for the church of Corinth in his insistence on character. His insistence on character. But there's more. Number two, we see Paul's love in his reverence for authority. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. In modern America, the idea of authority has long since fallen out of favor, especially among the young. Even in the church, many people were skeptical about concepts of authority and submission. I mean, it's like Jesus, yes, church, no. I'm a lone ranger. I got my Bible and I got Jesus and that's all I need. Really? Have you read your Bible lately? That's not the way the Bible portrays it. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You are saved out of the world and into the church. There is authority and there is submission. Now, Paul knew what many of us have forgotten, that every human institution God has created is, is grounded in the twin principles of authority and submission. Authority and submission. Every human institution that God ordained is grounded in the, the, these twin principles of authority and submission. Well, what are the institutions? There are four basic institutions that the Word of God speaks of. The first one is government. Romans chapter 15, if you want to read on it later. There is also the employer-employee relationship, mentioned several places in the New Testament. Ephesians, um, uh, Ephesians 6 will be a good place to look, and Colossians as well. There's the institution of the home, that's in Ephesians 5 and 6. There's the institution of the church, also mentioned in Ephesians 5. All of these institutions are based on the principles of authority and submission. But here's the thing. Every one of us live, right now, right now, you are in a position of both authority and submission, most of you. If you're an adult, especially if you're a mom or a dad, then you are in the twin positions at the same time of authority and submission. Right now you're sitting with your children, some of you, and that's a wonderful thing. We love for the children to be in our worship service. And if you're a member of this church, guess what? You're in submission. If you're a wife, you are currently under submission. You are submitting to your husband and Lord willing, you're submitting to the leadership of this church, but you're also in authority over your children. That's why some of you have been going, ping, you know, straighten up. <laughs> Look this way, pay attention. Take notes, do something. Um, you're in authority. And guess what? On the way home today, 
You're going to be both in authority and submission. You're going to be driving down the highway telling your kids what to do and what to stop doing. And at the same time, these speed limit signs are going to be going by you. And you're going to be going, if you're not paying attention, you're going to have someone in authority who's going to speak into your life. (laughs) And that's not going to be any fun. What's going on here? We have this dynamic of the institutions that are constantly going on. They're constantly living and breathing and moving so that you are under all of these institutions at the same time. Now, when you're away from your employer, that's no longer the case. But guess what? You're always under the civil government. You're always under the leadership of the church. You're always under leadership and submission in the home, wherever that that finds you. Wives, you're you're in a unique position because you are in authority over your children and submission to your husband. But husbands, your position gets even more dicey because while God has made you the authority, he has also called you in Ephesians 5.21 to rank yourself under the people you lead. Now, that's not always easy. That's not always cut and dried. That's not always black and white. We live in these institutions. And, and here's the point, the only way any of these institutions function well is if everyone is if everyone in that institution understands there's authority in their submission. Now, right now, do I need to be leading or following? Leading or following? Leading or following? Children, for the most part, your responsibility is to follow. To follow. Now, if you're an older child, you may also be given authority to lead. But your authority as a sibling is not a God-giving institution. That may be a revelation. (laughs) But you are in the institution of the home, and you need to know what what that means for you right now. What does that mean for you right now? And to the extent that that the institution is functioning well, that's wonderful. But here's what happens. Do you realize that nations, businesses, families, and churches all crumble for the same reasons? When they crumble, there's nothing new. There's nothing terribly complicated about it. All the details may be complicated. When an institution like Enron collapses, yeah, the details are complicated and who did what, and that's going to take a while to figure out. But when the leaders don't lead, it's as simple as this. When the leaders don't lead the way they should and the followers don't follow the way they should, chaos ensues. Serious problems arise that destroy the very fabric of that institution. When a man or a woman in a home starts fooling around outside of their marriage, you've just violated the institution, and there are consequences. When you break the law of the speed limit, there are consequences if you get caught. If you cheat on your taxes, there's an institution that will come looking for you. And if you commit some immorality or some egregious sin, for which you are unrepentant, then there are members in your church who are going to hunt you down because they love you. They love you. And when the institutions are functioning with a proper understanding of submission and authority, it's a beautiful thing. Those who need to be confronted are confronted, and those who are confronted repent and are restored. And unity is is made even stronger because the love is understood more personally. It's interesting to note in chapter 1, here Paul mentions Stephanus, 
in chapter 16, but this isn't the first place. Back in chapter 1, he mentions Stephanus, one of the first to be baptized in Corinth. He mentions him by name. And Paul talks about how few people he's actually baptized because he was concerned. People were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. And he's saying, why are you following me? Is Christ divided? And who made me a celebrity? Look, I haven't even baptized any of you. And then he names a couple exceptions to that. And one of them is Stephanus. Stephanus and his household. He'd become a dear brother to Paul. It was right there in Corinth. Here's Paul. He kind of stumbles out of Athens. He's sick. He was rejected in Athens. And he comes kind of stumbling into Corinth, sick, we think, physically ill. And here are these people who come... And they surround him by God's grace, and they help him, and they don't know anything about the gospel, and he preaches the gospel to them, and they're saved. And they become his dearest friends. They become a a part of that group of his dearest friends. And Stephanus was one of them. In verse 15 here in chapter 16, Paul calls the household of Stephanus the first fruits of Achaia. They were among the first to believe. And now here they are years later, probably three years later, they are known as those who devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Stephanus was a man who could be kind of a model of the character that Paul desires to see in all men. Here he was in the church of Corinth, and he's taking a stand. We don't know details, but we know this. He's the guy who brings their letter to the Apostle Paul, and he's getting ready to take the Apostle Paul's letter back to the church. This is a man of courage, a man of strong faith, a man of character. And so we see Paul's love in his insistence on godly character and his reverence for authority, because here, under Stephanus, he's telling the believers in Corinth, submit yourselves. Be in subjection to such men. And then later he says, he wants, um, he wants the church to lift these men up. Acknowledge them, verse 18 says, for they have refreshed my spirit in yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Acknowledge that these are the men that God wants us to follow. These are our godly leaders. They're worthy of emulation. They're worthy of our following and submitting to because God's hand is on them and God has appointed them to these roles. And so that's what Paul was saying of Stephanus. He was kind of their poster child for a man of character, a man who was worthy of emulation, a man who was worthy to be submitted to. And so Paul is saying, be in subjection to these men live under authority. Listen, part of the problem in the church at Corinth and in so many churches today is that everybody, everybody wants to be in charge. Too many chiefs, not enough Indians, right? Everybody wants to be in charge. Everybody has their own idea. What's well, great? It's great that God puts ideas on your heart. But you are living in an institution. The church is an institution that requires leadership and submission at various levels understand it and submit to it as if you are submitting to Christ. It's exactly what Paul says to wives. Submit to your husband as to the Lord. And it carries over under every institution. And so we see Paul's love 
uh, for the church in his insistence on godly character, in his reverence for authority. And then number three, we see Paul's love and his affection for God's people. Verses 17 and 18, watch this. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and (laughs) Archaicus, I think is how we would pronounce it. And here's why. Because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. These were three men that Paul loved, especially Stephanus. He's actually one of the brothers who brought the letter to Paul. And you understand, right? This is 1 Corinthians, but it's not the first letter. They apparently had written to him. He had written back to them a very strong letter. They have written back to him again. He is responding with this letter. They will respond again, and he will respond back with what we call 2 Corinthians. It's like a lot of email going back and forth, and we have two of them, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And here's this brother, Stephanus, that Paul had come to love and trust. And not only did he love and trust him, he had a deep personal affection for this man and for his companions, Fortunatus and Achaicus. Paul didn't get a lot of encouragement from the church of Corinth as a whole. But these brothers, every time Paul could spend some time with these guys, it was like a breath of fresh air. I mean, that's what he says. That's what he says. Look at verse 17. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. You guys don't encourage me. But I love it when you send these three brothers. And here's why. For they have refreshed my spirit, and I know they do yours as well. Paul said in verse 18, when he says, they refreshed my spirit, I mean, you got a person that comes to mind when you think of someone who refreshes your spirit. It's someone who just builds you up in Christ, someone who challenges you, and you know they love you. And you come away from speaking with them and you just want to love Jesus more? Don't you love to be around people like that? i got some friends who are like that. Brent Osterberg is great like that. The elders are great in terms of refreshing my spirit so often. They're committed to keep me humble too. Shannon Hurley, love being with that brother. Constantly challenging, praying, fellowshipping. A lot of spontaneity there. The former pastor of this church, Jim Pittman, I know I can call him anytime, day or night, and when he picks up the phone, I know it's not going to be 60 seconds before we're talking about Jesus or his word or something that honors God. Everybody needs to have people in their lives who refresh their souls. Don't you love to be people with, with people whose attitude and conversation refresh your spirit? so that you love Christ more, you see the glory of God more clearly, and you feel the love of God more personally. I mean, these are people who always have a timely word of Scripture to encourage. They're the first to see the glory of God in creation, or the sovereignty of God in a difficult circumstance. They bring God's word to bear on your particular issues in a way that communicates, I love you, and I want to remind you of God's promises. I remember I used to work at a camp as a 
as an older teenager down in Florida, grew up in New Jersey and got to Florida as much as I possibly could. And I worked at this Christian camp, and there was one guy, uh, one year there was a guy down there, an older, older than me, he was probably in his 20s, and I was in my late teens. And, uh, and we'd be standing out there talking, and he would look up and see that Florida sunset. And he, his face would just change, as if he were enraptured by what he was seeing. I'll never forget it. And he would say, wow, look at that. Isn't God an incredible artist. I mean, nobody could paint anything like that. And I remember thinking, wow, who is this guy? I've never seen anybody respond to a sunset like that before. And everywhere this, this young man went, he just refreshed the souls of the people of God. That's the way Fortunatus was. That's the way Stephanus was. The Caicus. That's the kind of people they were. Don't you want to be that kind of person? Don't you want to be that kind of person? Don't you want to be the kind of person that when others think of you, they think, wow, that brother or sister in Christ just refreshes my spirit every time I see him or hear from him. You use email for that purpose? You use Facebook for that purpose? Or just to say what's in your heart, which is not a good thing sometimes. What are you doing with your time? How do you communicate with people? Is it just about you? Or are you trying to refresh people's souls? Stephanus was that kind of brother to the apostle. And it's the kind of people that we should strive to be. People who are quick to give whatever, whatever it is that we have that they need because God wants us to. Sometimes God wants us to talk about God in front of other people so that they'll be amazed at his glory. Sometimes God wants us to talk to, to someone about their sin because God wants to bring them to repentance and to be unified with people perhaps that they've offended or at least their God. Sometimes God wants us to speak to people who are unbelieving and implore them and, and, and encourage them to trust in the Savior who is yours. We have so many opportunities. After this service, you're going to have opportunity to pray. Do it. Pray. Be on the alert. Don't miss the opportunity. Be someone who refreshes someone else's soul. But it wasn't just Stephanus and his friends that Paul had a deep affection for. There's also this other married couple. Look at here in verses 19 and 20. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this is really interesting. If you go overseas at all, especially into the lands of Russia, the former Soviet Union, um, you go into a church, they'll sing a little bit, they'll have some announcements, and then they'll say, okay, it's time for greetings. Now, if you're in a Baptist church here, a lot of times that means we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to turn around and shake hands and pat people on the back, and that's greetings. It's not the way it is there. Anyone want to give greetings? And someone in the back will stand up, and here we are in, let's just say we're in Moscow. And they'll stand up and say, I bring you greetings from um, the house of prayer in Dushanbe, Tajikistan, and the brothers and sisters, they send their greetings. And everybody says, Amin. And someone else will stand up, I bring you greetings from Nigeria, Africa, and the brothers who are faithful there. 
And you listen, and here's all of these countries represented by people who just happened to be visiting church that day. We have relatives who are in town, but they're believers, and they're coming from distant churches. And we always stand up and say, we bring you greetings from Calvary Bible Church from Texas, United States. And a rumble always goes through. They go, Texas, Texas, Texas. And everybody knows Texas, cowboys, you know, not the football team, the real ones. Um, but they bring greetings. And this is the way it was. Whenever they wrote to each other, they brought greetings from the other br- brothers and sisters in Christ. It's almost as if they were very conscious of the reality or wanted their people to be very conscious of the reality that while your local church is very important and significant, you should have a high view of your local church. Nevertheless, God is doing so much more outside the walls of your little church. Jesus is building his church, and he's doing it everywhere. He's doing it everywhere. And here were these, this, there was this couple, Aquila and Prisca. If their names sound familiar, it's because elsewhere in the New Testament, they are referred to as Aquila and Priscilla, in fact, in most places, they're referred to as Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul speaks of them all through the New Testament. But let me just take a moment to acquaint you with this couple. Here's Wearsby. I get this from Wearsby. just summarizes it for us so we can kind of compress this a little bit. Um, he writes, These two were a dedicated husband and wife team whose lives and ministry intersected and intertwined with Paul's. The apostle met them at Corinth. Because, like Paul, they were tent makers. In other words, they were in the same business. He made tents, they made tents. That's how they supported themselves. You might build F-16s, or maybe you're a police officer. They made tents. And so they knew other people who made tents. So there Paul was, supporting himself, not being a burden on this fledgling church that he was founding or trying to found. And he meets this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. This godly couple had been expelled from Rome because Aquila was a Jew. But that was only part of God's providence to get them to Corinth where they could assist Paul. Priscilla must have been a remarkable woman, he writes. This couple's names occur in the New Testament six times, and in four of these instances, Priscilla's name stands first. We get the impression that she was the stronger of the two, a devoted leader and witness. They worked together in serving the Lord and helping Paul. When Paul moved from Corinth to Ephesus, guess what? Aquila and Priscilla packed up and moved their business with him and assisted in founding the church in that needy city. Acts 18 refers to that. So capable were they that Paul left them to oversee the ministry in Ephesus while he returned to Antioch. And it was while they were in Ephesus that they assisted Apollos in a better understanding of the truth of the gospel. You remember that? He came to preach one time, gifted preacher, gifted preacher. And he comes and he preaches and he gets done and Aquila and Priscilla look at each other and they say, we need to have him over for dinner. And they bring him over and they they say basically, Apollos, that was wonderful. You were such a gifted preacher. Can we just talk about the gospel a little bit? Um... Let's just ask some questions. You know, we spent an awful lot of time with Paul. And I think what he would tell you is this, that. And you know what? Apollos seized on it. And he became a great evangelist, a great preacher in that day. Because Aquila and Priscilla 
had the courage to pull him aside and say, Paulus, your doctrine is good, but it's incomplete. You don't fully understand the gospel yet. And we're here to help you. One of the churches in Ephesus met in their house, which shows that there were people given to hospitality. Romans 16.4 states that at one time, this dedicated couple risked their own lives to help save Paul. But Priscilla and Aquila didn't remain in Ephesus. For when Paul wrote to the saints in Rome, he greeted this couple there by name. Ephesians, I'm sorry, Romans 16, verse 3. And once again, we find, guess what? They had a church meeting in their house. Wherever they went, they were helping Paul. And whenever possible, they had one of the congregations of a certain city meet in their house. They didn't have buildings like we do. They met in people's homes. And when the home was absolutely full, they sent somebody to meet in some, a group of people to meet in someone else's home. But Priscilla and Aquila always had a church meeting in their home. This was a remarkable couple. Listen, beloved, every church needs need couples like this, like Priscilla and Aquila. We need men and women who are full of love for Christ, who are fearless in their devotion to the gospel, who are committed to hospitality and the meeting of needs, and ready to pick up and move if necessary so that they can be as effective in ministry as possible. Well, let me just stop right there. Because you know that we have a plan within the next three years to plan a new church. And Brent and Carey are going to be, by God's grace, the ones who are sent and I know there's at least one or two other couples in this church who have already said, when they go, we go. Not because we're following Brent, but because we want to be a part of what God's doing next. And you know what? Some of you are going to need to do that. You're going to need to pick up and go. You say, well, who's going to fill our position? This is God's church. He'll put somebody in your position and raise them up. They'll, they'll, they'll meet whatever the, the, the demand of the need for ministry is. They'll... The bar will be raised, and they'll rise with it. We need to send some of our very best people out if we're going to be faithful in planning a new church. Some of you will need to pick up, sell your house, and go. That's what Aquila and Priscilla did. Where do you need us, Lord? Where do you need us? You kicked us out of Rome for a while? Okay, we'll go to Ephesus. Go to Corinth. Come back to Rome. Antioch, where do you want us? We're willing to go. We're willing to go. Love it. Oh, for men and women like this at Calvary Bible Church. For more men and women like this. Paul loved this couple. And he wanted everyone in the church to love one another the way he loved them and the way they loved him. And one of the indicators, quite frankly, one of the indicators that a church is healthy is the obvious love that people have for one another. Even for those who are visiting. I mean, if you visit Calvary Bible Church, you ought to be overwhelmed by people who are inviting you to lunch and calling you during the week and want to know how to pray for you. And praise God, that happens often. And then verse 20, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Isn't that great? In other words, greet each other with holy affection. Be affectionate toward one another in the Lord. In Paul's day, the culture was to kiss on the cheek. Men with men, women with women. There's some debate about that. But you know what? When I go to the former Soviet Union, it's obvious 
that they interpret this very, very literally. And it is with men, with men, women, with women. But it's not on the cheek, it's on the lips. You've got to be careful when you go over there to minister, I tell you. Um, but they take this very, very literally. When I go over there to, to teach, um, we, uh, we usually take people with us to go over and we have to give them a little instruction on how to bob and weave in, in a polite way. How to get your hand out to shake their hand and they're all American, they shake hands or they embrace but they don't kiss. And we even got bought out one day by this young lady who uh, was getting after me and the other men on our team because we didn't greet people by kissing on the lips. And, uh, and you say, uh, well, that's gross. And you're right, but, <laughs> but not in that culture. Not in that culture. As many times as I've been over there, I've been able to uh, discreetly and, and uh, I think politely shake hands and embrace and, and avoid the holy kiss. You know, he dodged the holy kiss. Uh, one exception to that, and this happened on two occasions, same brother, and we've told you about him before. His name is Boy Mahman, and he is uh, living in one of the poorest countries in um, the former Soviet Union. And for, because it's being put on the internet, I won't tell you where. But uh, it's the only Christian family in a Muslim village. It's 12 children, 11 or 12 children. Second wife, his first one died. Very hard life. He was born in the house he lives in, mud brick. He's now the father and the leader of that home. Um, all of his neighbors in the village uh, are Muslim, and he doesn't care. He goes and he knocks on their door and he loves them and serves them. He's a lion. He is absolutely, he's this, he's this little guy, he's white hair, beard, he looks like Jeremiah. And he acts like him. He's just fearless. Fearless. Leads his family in worship. When we come, they put out this spread on the floor. They serve meals on the floor and you sit on pads all around it and, they, and, and you tear the chicken with your hands and, and you, you eat things that make you sick. But it's It's wonderful. Wonderful fellowship, and the first time we were out there, in fact, both times when we were out there, um, he's baffled, and he just says, you know, I'm so blessed. You came from Texas, America, to Tajikistan, and, you know, I just told you the country, and you, you've come to my house. Why? And we tell him, we hear that you're a faithful man, and we want to encourage you. And we talk with him, and he tells us about the struggles that he faces. And invariably, before we leave, we pray, and he'll grab us each by the shoulders and kiss us on the lips. And it is such deep affection for brothers in Christ. He doesn't even speak the same language that we do. But he loves us, and he loves this church. And that's the way it should be. That's the whole point of greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet with affection. Don't be afraid to show affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ. There are men in this congregation, if I reach out to shake their hand, they'll be offended. They don't want a handshake. They want a bear hug. And they're going to crack my back <laughs> weakly to prove their point. And, and this is especially true. If you lead a person to Christ, and they become a part of the church, 
and take the role in Christ and leave the old life behind, the old disastrous life behind. And Paul in Romans quoted out of, out of um, Isaiah when he said in chapter 10 of Romans, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. In other words, he's saying there's, there's often such deep affection for the person who brought you to Christ that even their yucky, stinky, ugly feet are beautiful in their eyes. And that's how it should be in the church. There should be, church, there should be people all over this congregation that praise God there are. People all over this congregation who came to know Christ here. And they love, they have such loyalty and love for the people who land to Christ, it's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. And that's the kind of love believers should have for one another. So we see Paul's love and his assistance in godly character, his reverence for authority, his affection for God's people, and finally we see the love of Paul and his longing for Christ's return. Verses 20 through 22, 21 and 22. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Let me just stop there. Paul, like the other apostles, used, used, usually dictated their letters to some kind of a secretary. Once in a while, Paul would name one of the secretaries he used. His name was Tertius. And, and in one occasion, at least, Tertius added his own greeting. Um, I forget what book that was in. But it was often Paul's practice to authenticate the letter that his secretary wrote by putting his own salutation in it with his own hand. He would tell churches, okay, let me have a pen. It's like signing the letter, and he says, this greeting is in my own hand, Paul. In another one of his letters, he says, see how big my letters are? It's me, Paul. We're false apostles. Paul wanted them to be sure they understood that this was coming directly from him. His final word, however, seems a little peculiar because watch what he says. 